you only have to look at someone like Klaus Schwab. He acts as if he's a head of state. He expects to be treated as if he's a head of state. And of course he's not, but that's clearly the type of aspiration that underlies many of these supranational organizations. And all supranational organizations need some sort of cause to keep them in business, to lend them intellectual and philosophical legitimacy. In the case of the World Economic Forum, it's stakeholder capitalism and ESG. When big corporations like Bud Light or Target go blatantly woke to the detriment of their shareholders and their profits, you might be asking yourselves, what exactly are they doing and why? This is where ESG comes in. Environment, social and governance, which are three pillars of a pervasive corporate social credit score that companies are either pressured or incentivized to abide by. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I invited Samuel Gregg, Distinguished Fellow of Political Economy at AIER, to discuss the origins of ESG, how it's being applied, and its ties to the UN SDGs and the World Economic Forum. We also explore its role in reflecting, promoting, and shaping woke ideology. This is something that a lot of people think, oh, it's the corporations who are doing this. They're just kind of committing suicide. They're going woke and going broke. But there are actually forces behind the corporations which are pushing them to do these kinds of things. And there are incentives there for the corporate uh, structure, correct? Yes, I think uh, what, what you said about this being... Uh, a phenomena that's driven by multiple factors in multiple directions outside and inside corporations is exactly right. If you want to look at the origins of ESG, and uh, let's, uh, let me make clear I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat right now, but much of this actually comes from United Nations documents that were put together in the early 2000s in which different uh, NGOs uh, committed themselves to basically re-envisaging the entire conception of what business is and what business does. And what they were talking about was essentially lining up business so that it doesn't just pursue profit, but in the pursuit of profit, it promotes environmental, E, social, S, and governance goals at the same time. And many of those NGOs are, of course, very active. They're very active in corporate, in the corporate world around the world. Corporate America tends to pay attention to them, uh, either because they, they worry about them or because they're genuinely interested in what they have to say. So that's one area it's coming from. A second area it's coming from is uh, business schools. Now, about 20 years ago, I don't know if you can re you remember this, Kate. There was this thing called corporate social responsibility, CSR it was called. And it was very much a pre-runner to what we call ESG today. And corporate social responsibility was an idea or theory uh, built by business professors that basically tries to do the same thing as ESG, which is to incorporate these other goals as well as profit into the operations of business. It was very prominent in the 1990s. It went into an eclipse as the economy improved and started to do well and people started not worrying so much about those sorts of issues. So ESG is, in a sense, a continuation of that agenda. And then there's the other thing, which is, of course, stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder capitalism, very much associated with groups like the World Economic Forum and its chair chairman, uh, Klaus Schwab, that is all about trying to get corporations to accept that they just don't have to answer to shareholders. They have to answer to numerous, quote unquote, stakeholders. Stakeholders can be people like your customers. They can be the community in which you live, all of which would be quite normal for business to pay attention to. But by stakeholder capitalism, they mean things like the environment or the latest social or political cause that's fashionable on, but usually on the left, of course. And that's another direction in which ESG is coming from. Now, I do think there are some people in the corporate world who are true believers. They actually believe in some of this stuff. They want to reorientate business along these lines. 
I also think there's a good number of corporate executives um, who basically take the view that they have to react to these types of circumstances. They can't ignore them. And I think what they're afraid of is that if they don't go along to a certain extent with some of these ideas, the government will regulate them into doing it anyway. Uh, to which my response, whenever I hear corporate CEOs say this to me, I say is, look, the left will never be satisfied with what you're doing. You will always feel, fall short. Secondly, they will never accept your legitimacy as businesses. Dislike of business, dislike of capitalism, dislike of markets, dislike of profit is simply built into the DNA of the left. That's never really going to change. So if you go along, I guarantee they'll never be satisfied and they will point to what they regard as your failed efforts as justifying the need for regulation, to basically regulate you so that they force you to engage in some of these activities. So that's where I think ESG is coming from. It's coming from multiple directions. It's ins from inside corporate America, from outside corporate America, from organizations like the World Economic Forum, from business schools like the United Nations, as well as all those who have signed up to the stakeholder capitalism agenda. So that makes it a very difficult topic to, to discuss in a coherent way because it's, it's very messy, to be frank. Uh, but also, it's, it's a real threat to business because they're basically trying to change the very nature of what business does. And I think anyone who's in the world of markets should be concerned about that. So how did it become so ascendant in the last couple of years? Like we've seen, you know, you said this has been going on since at least the early 2000s in different mm -hmm. forms and kind of becoming what it is today. But how did we get here where it's so in your face and we can see that these companies are literally putting their profits way in the back burner, in fact, maybe even just kind of sabotaging themselves in order to make sure that they have a good ESG score? I think it's, it's come to prominence for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, we went through, particularly the United States, but the world in general, went through a very difficult time in 2020. And a lot of corporate America uh, was trying to react to the very fast social and cultural changes associated with things like Black Lives Matters, for example, uh, by trying to show that they were concerned about environmental issues, social issues, and what you might call internal governance issues. So to a certain extent, it was a reaction to the type of circumstances they saw around them. Uh, secondly, uh, political leaders, particularly on the left, have understood very quickly that this was an opportunity for them to try and force business into positions and, and taking views on particular subjects that business really has no interest in per se, that it's not particularly concerned with. But they wanted, the left wanted business to be involved in thinking about and actively promoting many of these things. And 2020 was an opportunity for them to expand that, that whole agenda within corporate America. Uh, and so we saw this with things like uh, the rise of what you might call chief diversity officers, CDOs, who are basically responsible for promoting many of these goals within companies. And again, I think this was companies reacting to very swift changing circumstances around them, as well as political pressures coming from the left to try and show that they cared about these types of issues. And of course, once you let these people inside the gates, they're very difficult to dislodge. So if you look, for example, at most HR departments of many big players in corporate in the corporate world, whether it's America, Europe, Canada, or wherever, you look at the HR departments, they are full of people who believe in these types of things. And it's once once they're inside, it's very, very difficult to dislodge them. So I think this is these are some of the reasons why it's become very prominent. The last thing I'll say in this regard is that some people in corporate in the corporate world realized that this was an opportunity to make money. Because the thing about ESG funds is that you, they typically charge more money by way of fees. And the rationale is, well, of course, you're signing up to promote specific goals beyond profit making and shareholder value. So therefore, you should expect that you will pay more 
by way of fees. So for some people on Wall Street, this was a fantastic opportunity to make money as well as sound uh, very progressive in their politics and engage in a great deal of virtue signaling. So I think these are the reasons why it suddenly coalesced very, very quickly. And of course, the reaction was slow in coming because when you think about it, why wouldn't you be concerned about the environment? Why wouldn't you be concerned about social issues? Why wouldn't you be concerned about governance questions? And when you realize, um, when you realize that the agenda associated with all that is very, very different from what you thought you signed up to, you suddenly find yourself in a position where it's very difficult to back out of these positions without being told that you're the opposite, that you don't care about the environment, that you're not interested in governance issues, that social questions don't matter to you. So it's almost like a perfect storm hit corporate America and the wider corporate world more generally all at once. And now I think business finds itself entangled in many of these schemes and some of them, I have to say, I think are trying to get out of it now. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that they might see uh, what could happen to companies like Bud Light uh, and then say, oh, my gosh, maybe we shouldn't you know, be on this train anymore. But you mentioned something interesting there, Sam, as well, which was 2020 as mm -hmm. being kind of a turning point in all of this. And again, we don't want to talk about tinfoil hats, but we know that there are things that changed in 2020 and we had the World Economic Forum come out and say, we need a great reset. We need mm -hmm. stakeholder capitalism. We need all of these things. And if we also look at cultural revolutions of the past, you see that these things can also take shape very quickly and things can turn around kind of suddenly. So big picture, do you think that that's what's going on? It's certainly part of what is happening because I think it's fair to say that progressives in America and around the world have become much more aggressive in pushing their particular cultural agendas uh, in the lead up to 2020 and after 2020 as well. Uh, and they're very good at portraying people who even mildly critique some of the things they're trying to do as reactionaries, as people who are, who are who are haters, who hate particular groups, etc. So it is certainly part of these wider trends that we see happening in Western societies today, whether it's things like the movement for reparations, uh, whether it's things like uh, tearing down statues, all these types of uh, what you might call cultural insurgencies, uh, you can't separate ESG and all its works out from that broader background of a very aggressive, progressive left trying to push its agenda at every level of society. And that includes the corporate world, that includes business. So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with James Lindsay from New Discourses. He talks a lot about this kind of stuff as well. And he basically uh, describes uh, the ESG framework as being run by a cartel. So he says there are a very small amount of people who have an immense amount of power over these corporations. Uh, and I find that really interesting because it's, you know, Hayek talks about that as well, about having this kind of centrally planned economy. You know, because corporations obviously are a massive part of the economy. So do you think that this is in a way a kind of central planning operation that is run by a cartel or would you consider it another way? Well, I have two thoughts about that. One is that we do have very large investment funds like BlackRock, for example, who by virtue of owning so much stock via the different funds that they run, have a certain degree of influence in corporate boardrooms, right? So uh, if they sign on to things like ESG, which BlackRock, at least until relatively recently, certainly did, mm -hmm. then they can certainly say to different corporations, look, we are a 30% shareholder in your firm. We want to see action on things like 
ESG or whatever it happens to be, right? So, or DEI, or the particular agendas associated with that. So it's very clear that because of their very large market share, which, and large market share is not a problem in itself, but because of their very large market share, they're in a position to exert this type of influence upon boards of directors by saying, well, if you don't do what we say in this area, we're going to put people on the board who will do what we want in this particular area. So that's the first thing. In terms of the central planning side of things, I think there is something to that. Insofar, insofar as, as we talked about before, groups like the United Nations in the early 2000s put their weight and all the NGOs associated with that put their weight behind this particular type of initiative. They are really trying to reshape the very nature of business and the very nature of capitalism and market economies themselves. And they, they, to the extent that this is coming from international organizations, transnational organizations like the United Nations, then I think it's fair to say that there is an element of central planning about this. It's not like a, it's not like a command economy of a Stalinist type. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about, though, is a high degree of coordination between international organizations, NGOs, international NGOs, but also nation-based NGOs, as they constantly push this ESG agenda in boardrooms, in big businesses, and even in small businesses as well. Now, I think there's a fair amount of pushback against this happening right now, and I'm very pleased to see that, and, and I think it's going to have some significant effects. But there's no question to my mind that there is an element of central planning to this. It's just not the central planning that our grandparents had to confront. Right. And in a way, uh, maybe the central planning... Okay, I won't say that it's worse, because if we talk about Stalin, we could see how that went and led to hundreds of millions of people who died. But if we think about this whole thing in the long run, those were happening at the nation state level, that kind of central planning. And here you just said supranational, transnational organizations who are trying to decide basically what the, the utopia should look like. So what do you think the dangers of that are in the long run if it does play out uninterrupted and they're successful at whatever their mission is for this kind of, I guess, green new world? Well, I think one way of looking at this is to consider what the World Economic Forum, the WEF, is doing in this particular area. And um, you can go on their websites and look up the things that they print and the books that Klaus Schwab writes, and it's very clear that he wants what he calls stakeholder capitalism to replace the focus upon profit and shareholder value that is what market capitalism is focused upon. So this is not made up stuff. This is not tinfoil stuff. They are very clear about what they want to achieve. Schwab himself has, says we, has said, we need to completely revisit the way that we think about the economy. And that, of course, involves rethinking the role of the state, rethinking the role of civil society and NGOs vis-a-vis -vis the economy. So there's no question that this is the agenda that's being pursued. Now, you may ask, what, is this, what does this look like? What is the goal? The goal, I would argue, is a progressive form of what's called corporatism. Now, by corporatism, I don't mean corporations. What I mean by corp corporatism is the idea that you have business, civil society, NGOs, maybe unions, etc., and these are all organizations that are coordinated from the top down by the government. And the emphasis is upon building and establishing and then reinforcing consensus on any number of questions, whether it's the, uh, the economy, whether it's the environment, whether it's things like climate change, whatever it happens to be. And this system, corporatism, is not a new system. It's a system that was deployed in the 1920s and 1930s in countries ranging from Mussolini's Italy 
to even things like the New Deal. The New Deal was heavily influenced by corporatist thinking. And it's not a sort of command and control arrangement. It's much more about, as I said, coordinating things from the top down. You allow a certain degree of freedom so that businesses can still make enough money, that people feel sufficiently free that they can't say that they are overtly oppressed. But the point is to build, establish, and reinforce a consensus on whatever the topic happens to be. And the point, of course, is that if you disagree with the consensus, if you step outside the consensus, then you have no political support, you have no cultural support, you have no economic support. Because corporatism, by definition, doesn't tolerate people moving outside whatever the consensus happens to be. So this is not a new political system. It's a system that was used by different regimes in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, other, some people would even argue that it's influential in, for example, the European Union today and the way that the European Union operates. But I think that is the political goal. Now, in the 1920s and 1930s, certainly in Europe, it tended to have a hard right complexion. But in uh, 2020s, uh, the 2020s West, I would argue corporatism has this distinctive, progressive, left tint to it. So the consensus that they're trying to establish through corporatist means is very much a left-leaning, progressive one that uh, marginalizes very quickly anyone who doesn't sign up to those causes. So how did these organizations like the WEF or the UN become so powerful? Mm. Well, in the case of the World Economic Forum, it essentially started as a type of place where business leaders, politicians, civil society people, NGOs would meet to discuss the state of the world. Now, these sorts of things go on all the time. There's lots of talking shops for heads of government, heads of big businesses, leaders of large NGOs, etc. These happen all the time. Uh, and in the World Economic Forum, <clears throat> and its focus was very economic when it first started, uh, that essentially was a type of talking shop as well as an opportunity for networking. That was the real value for many people. They would go and they would network because they would get the chance to meet corporate leaders, political leaders, civil society leaders that they might not otherwise have the chance to meet in one place once a year, Davos in Switzerland. But I would say that in the, in the, in the mid-2000s, going on into the early 2010s, the World Economic Forum started to take on this type of shape of seeing itself as a type of coordinator of the world economy, a way in which you could form consensus and agreement among political leaders from all over the world. So it took on more of the features of a typical supranational institution, like the, the European Union, for example. Now, the World Economic Forum does, has no coercive powers. It can't make you do anything. It doesn't have borders. It's not a sovereign state. It doesn't have a legal system to which we're all subject. But it certainly behaves as if it's a type of supranational entity that nation states and other expressions of sovereignty are in some way bound to pay heed to. So in that sense, it's a type of private version of the United Nations. The United Nations has relatively limited formal powers. It can't really coerce people to do things without the agreement, certainly of the, of the UN Security Council, as well as its broader members. But these organizations do have this type of supranational aspiration that has become more and more apparent over time. And you see this most vividly in an institutional and political form concretized in something like today's European Union, very much a supranational institution, which does claim some type of sovereignty, which does claim some type of legal authority over its members, etc. So if you look at these organizations, that is broadly the direction in which they are moving. And again, this is not tinfoil hat stuff. This is very clear from their own documents, from the things they say, from the way they act, what they write, how they present themselves. You only have to look at someone like Klaus Schwab. 
He acts as if he's a head of state. He expects to be treated as if he's a head of state. And of course he's not, but that's clearly the type of aspiration that underlies many of these supranational organizations. And all supranational organizations need some sort of cause to keep them in business, to lend them intellectual and philosophical legitimacy. In the case of the World Economic Forum, it's stakeholder capitalism and ESG. Okay. So if we think about the United States particularly, it mm -hmm. obviously has a very different structure than European countries or the European Union. And it seems that there are more protections provided by the Constitution. Um, but what we saw with the New Deal back in 1933 was that there was kind of this covert uh, change that happened to the architecture of America, where it had some elements of corporatism. But mm -hmm. it, it wasn't so overt as, as, like I said, what we saw happen in Europe during, let's right. say, the Second World War, or maybe what's happening now in Europe, where they're blatantly saying, we're going to do these things. Um, so do you think that there is a danger for Americans, uh, both regular citizens, politicians, people at all levels, to not really see what's happening and to not see the dangers of ESG and, and of this whole thing? Yes, I, certainly I think if you look at the United States um, and my my colleague and our friend Philip Magnus of AIER has written a lot about the historical dimension of this and how things like the New Deal and the Great Society, for that matter, how these things took hold. And what's interesting is that um, in the case of the New Deal, this was presented as an emergency response, an emergency response to, the, to a catastrophic situation. In the case of the Great Society, this was presented as a type of whole-of-government approach to, quote-unquote, abolishing poverty. So there's always a cause, whether it's a sort of a good long-term cause, like reducing poverty, or what seems to many people at the time to be an absolute necessity, which is how do we get ourselves out of the Great Depression? These things are typically presented as emergency measures, as things that are necessary for the moment or until we've dealt with a certain problem and then they, the, then the, the problem will go away and we can get back to the way that things were. But as we know, that's not actually how it works. Once you set these institutions up, they acquire a legitimacy and a momentum of their own. And they get very much into the business of protecting their turf and expanding their bureaucratic power. I don't know a bureaucracy that's intent on trying to reduce its scope or trying to reduce its power. By definition, uh, as people like Max Weber pointed out in his great book on bureaucracy, this is the way that bureaucracies tend to metastasize. So if you're living in those conditions, it's very easy to think, well, this is just going to be on for a, a year or so, and then once we're out of this recession, once we're out of this depression, all these things will go away and we can get back to the America that we thought we lived in. And of course, that doesn't happen. So in the case of something like ESG, this is being very much presented in terms of the need to respond to, first of all, uh, what, the, uh, what uh, the, the climate change, the climate change agenda. This has been seen as the way in which American businesses can respond to uh, what is being presented to Americans in the world as this potential climate catastrophe that they argue is almost upon us. So that's the emergency situation which is being presented. And so people think, well, if I put my money in ESG funds and I can be sure that I'm making a strong contribution by the way I invest my money to promoting these environmental and social and governance goals. Uh, and then we can, then at some point in the future, uh, we'll either get back to normal or we'll just understand that business has changed, the nature of business has changed, and business now operates according to different norms and principles, and isn't that a good thing? So you have this strange combination of emergency situations, of uh, a sense that one needs to do something in response to this emergency situation. 
But over time, it's very easy to become used to these things, to start to think, well, this is just the new normal. So it's now normal that we have this big administrative state in the United States. It's now normal that the government consumes uh, 37% of national GDP. It's now normal that uh, the government is expected to be involved in regulating the economy in ways that would have seemed incomprehensible even to someone like, I suspect, even someone like Franklin Roosevelt would have found some of the regulation to which we're subject today incomprehensible. So it, that is how I think it's presented. And it's very easy to acquiesce initially because you're concerned that we need to deal with this emergency situation. And in emergency situations, we're always willing to tolerate things we would never otherwise tolerate in normal circumstances. And then we can very easily get used to it. And the problem is, by the time people wake up and realize we need to push back, pushing back can be very, very, very difficult because bureaucracies will resist. They will resist as much as they can any attempt to curtail their power. So that's really interesting, Sam. And I'd like to touch a little bit on the whole climate catastrophe for a moment because I mm -hmm. think that this is a really important thing to talk about and to go kind of deeper into um, because I don't, I don't know that everybody understands just how dangerous it is. So one thing is that it's a really long-term emergency, right? It can sure. go on for decades. It can go on for the next 50 years, for 100 years, for whatever arbitrary uh, moving target is decided. And the other thing about that is that it has a very Malthusian flavor. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea is this is anthropo anthropogenic climate change. It's man made. We are the problem. We consume too much. Uh, we're too concerned with profits. Uh, it ties into the whole kind of ethos of ESG in a way, I think, perfectly. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure, because uh, if you look at uh, some of the proposals, policy proposals being put forward by um, climate change activists. It's no coincidence that, first of all, it tends to get wrapped up in anti-capitalist sentiment because capitalism is seen as uh, using things like fossil fuels, of, of um, factories, of creating smog, pollution, etc., etc. And so ESG is seen as a way of, of uh, trying to deal with that. Now, one could, of course, point out that the worst polluters in the, in the world were the communist regimes of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. They were the worst polluters in the world, uh, and, and that's precisely because they had centralized planning trying to drive the economy forward from a centralized standpoint. So that's one part of the issue. Uh, the other part of the issue is that it plays into, as you, something you mentioned before, which is this Malthusian sentiment that never seems to quite go away. Uh, now, in the 1960s and 1970s, this was very much a part of the population bomb rhetoric that was used by people like Paul Ehrlich at the time people who were saying, well, there's going to be so many people on the planet, we're going to consume all the world's resources and we'll basically be eating each other within a certain period of time. And so that resulted in all sorts of terrible things uh, that were all about trying to control and reduce the size of populations. I mean, China's one-child policy is a classic example, right? But now China has a huge demographic problem because it doesn't have enough people. <laughs> it, it is basically in a situation where it has a very old population and a very small young population. And that's a disaster. Economically speaking, that's a disaster for healthcare systems. That's a disaster for social security systems. But what the old Malthusians of the 1970s and 1980s have in common with many of the climate change activists today is this conviction that people are the problem, uh, particularly just the sheer number of people. And so that's why you find some of the people who are involved in ESG and other causes saying things like, we need to get back to having um, uh, 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 only a certain number of people on the planet. We can only have one billion people on the planet and that's it. 
They literally say things like this because that's the only way that we can save the planet from uh, the deprecations of human beings and the fact that human beings exist in the first place. And it's no coincidence that a lot of ESG funds buy into this type of rhetoric, that they buy into this type of catastrophic rhetoric because that's very attractive uh, for a lot of people who buy into these types of ideas. And there's plenty of ESG funds who are more than willing to take their money and invest it in ESG funds, when, which when you look very carefully at the detail, differ only marginally from non-ESG funds. But guess what? The corporations get to, get to charge people higher fees. So they have a very strong incentive for um, encouraging people to go down this path. Um, and so also, what about the whole carbon markets and the whole green economy? Like, what does that actually look like? Who's profiting from that? And, and how are they profiting from that? Well, uh, I think it's fair to say that a good number of, let's call it green companies, green industry companies, uh, most of them, in my estimation, are not really able to make much by way of profit uh, outside uh, getting some type of subsidy or some favorable industrial policy from the government. And that's really attractive to governments who want to prove their environmental credentials because they can say things like, look, we're very active in promoting environmentally friendly industries or, or green capitalism or whatever you want to call it, the new green deal. That's very attractive to politicians uh, who want to be able to show people that they're quote unquote doing something. But it's also it becomes a new form of cronyism because there's no shortage of business leaders who will look out and say, you know, if I can sell these legislators on this idea that I'm creating a company that's that's green friendly, that's promoting a green economy, I'm probably likely to get some subsidies or tax breaks in response for doing that. So I'm not saying that's the whole of the environmental industry. I'm not saying that's the whole of uh, what you might call the new green economy. But there's a fair amount of that type of thinking and logic that goes into it. And if you're a clever entrepreneur and you think if you're interested in trying to get subsidies or benefits from the government, then what better way than to present yourself as the most environmentally friendly and uh, green economy amenable company that you could possibly be because you are surely going to get some favors from some legislators that wouldn't be accorded to companies that don't go down that path. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense, Sam. And, and that's what I meant by profits. I didn't mean actual profits to the companies, because as we know, these are less important now than those kinds of favors. So another thing, another thing about the whole ESG structure, I think as well, is if you look at it in the way that it might be destructive or self-destructive to certain corporations, and we look at incentives behind that as well, like let's say Bud Light, why would you destroy your company? Why would you do this, right? Well, if there is indeed some kind of utopia that's at the end of all of this, well, maybe if you make this sacrifice now, there's an incentive for uh, governors of these boards to say, well, I will be favored later on. I will be given maybe monopolistic powers later on. We'll have less corporations and we're going to come out surviving. If we, if we throw ourselves into the fire now, maybe mm. later on there will be some benefits. Do you think there's anything to that? I think there's something to that. I mean, let's, let's take the case of um, Bud Light. So what's interesting about that is, remember, they hired a new director of marketing who was, by any standard, uh, politi politically very progressive, if not outright, outright woke. And the, 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 if you look at the, the, this story, so the argument was that Bud Light needed to appeal to younger audiences beyond its usual constituency of uh, beer drinkers if they were going to make sure that they maintained uh, market share going forward 
into the future. So how do you do that? Well, you have the transgender activist, et cetera, et cetera, promoting beer. And of course, the marketing director thought this, obviously, but was part of this, thought this was a great idea. And it was also a way of flashing, if you like, uh, Bud Light's uh, progressive ESG credentials, etc. And so I have to think that, that there was a type of economic calculation going on. They're trying to think about their target audience and their future market, right? So they're thinking younger people tend to be more sympathetic to these things. So we need to show that we're sympathetic to these things so that younger people will keep drinking Bud Light beer in the future. Well, it turned out to be a colossal mistake for a couple of reasons. One is that they totally misread their, um, their customers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. totally yeah. misread that. Secondly, it's pretty clear, I think, that politics and political uh, concerns trumped attention to who actually were their, their customer base. Uh, thirdly, I think it's pretty clear, and this goes beyond Bud Light, that some people just want to purchase products without being lectured to or being told that they're somehow making themselves part of a particular type of political movement simply by consuming a particular product. You know, sometimes people just want to have a glass of wine. They just want to have a beer. They just want to have a glass of whiskey. They don't particularly want to be lectured or, or subtly or not so subtly told that they need to get on board with particular cultural and political agendas if they're going to be seen as respectable people. So I think that's what was infuriating people. It wasn't that they had any particular, necessarily had strong views on any particular given subject. It was the notion that business was hectoring them about social and cultural causes that, strictly speaking, are a distraction for what business is supposed to be doing. Now, my guess is that Bud Light thought, well, we've seen these consumer boycotts before. They'd never last. We'll get back to business pretty quickly. If there's a backlash in the long term, we'll do very well. Well, it turned out not to be the case because I think this was a different market. This was a different type of customer constituency. And also because Bud Light is such a big company and so many people use its product that so many more people were impacted by this frankly, propagandistic effort to try and associate beer drinking with particular social causes. And it's not as if people don't have a choice about going somewhere else to get a beer. Right? They can go to many, many other places to get a beer. So this was a, this was a classic miscalculation, a perfect storm for Bud Light. But I think you're right. I think they were looking with an eye to the future and how they thought social and cultural trends were likely to go. And it turned out that that calculation was deeply mistaken. But you don't think that it's possible that there were certain people there and maybe there still are people there now who think it doesn't matter that this just happened here. It doesn't mm -hmm. really matter because the people, the cartel, let's say, of ESG saw the move that we made and they're going to know once we move into this kind of new era that they can count on people like me and they might put me on the board of X company or whatever it is. Yes, I think there is, there is something to that insofar as if you believe that ESG is the future, whether as a matter of personal conviction or whether you just happen to think that that's where the market is going, then in a sort of very long-term strategic calculation, you could see how some people might say, well, we'll take some losses now, but in 10 years' time, uh, we will benefit either personally or our company will be better positioned than others to operate in an ESG-dominated economy. So I think there is some truth to that, you can see how some people might make that type of calculation. And it would certainly be pleasing, at least to some people who run some of these very big ESG funds, some of the, um, some of the very big fund, fund uh, owners who, who do this. But it turned out to be a serious miscalculation, not just in terms of the immediacy of losing so much market share, losing so many Customers. I mean, I'm sure you've seen these videos of people putting cans of Bud Light up on 
uh, up on walls and then using machine guns to destroy them. I mean, I'm yes. sure they never expected this type of visceral uh, pushback against what, what they had done. But the other thing, of course, is whether we're going to end up in an ESG-dominated economy, I think, is becoming more of an open question now insofar as the backlash that some companies, not just Bud Light, but Target, for example, and others are experiencing as a consequence of associating themselves with agendas, political and cultural agendas that many people around the world do not like, especially when it concerns children. That's when they really start to get very angry about these agendas being pushed. Uh, we'll start to see how long some of these bigger firms and big fund managers stick to this ESG agenda. I find it fascinating. I'm sure you've noticed as well, Kate. Larry Fink, BlackRock, Mr. ESG, now saying, I don't like the term. I think it's become politicized. I think we need to step back and rethink some of these things. Or mm -hmm. when Vanguard withdraws from this big consortium of firms that said that they weren't going to do certain things anymore, mainly related to fossil fuels, and Vanguard realizing, are we, are we crazy? Fossil fuels are a huge industry. That's, a, that's, that's one of our biggest source of energy. How can we possibly say that we're going to be against these sorts of things? So there is a certain degree of backlash that is already occurring. And that, I think, may cause some business leaders to rethink this sort of long-term strategic calculation that you're pointing to. Because if ESG turns out not to be the future, if ESG goes the way of corporate social responsibility, then they're going to have some big questions that they'll get, they're going to need to answer to their shareholders. I think it makes sense, Sam, because if you see... Um it, when people start to see the reality play out, like they, they mm -hmm. watch these things in action. I mean, if you think about the Paris Accord, for example, this yes. used to be a virtue signal. Politicians right. would sign up for it. They wouldn't actually do anything. They wouldn't actually really change any behavior, maybe a little touch here or there. But now, as we can see that uh, corporations are being obligated to do things or that governments are being obligated to do certain things we can actually see the results of these things and and realizing oh my goodness what we're doing here is we're destroying our economies we're destroying our prosperity uh, we might be turning the lights out in the case of energy you know, we're moving Literally. back Literally to a place of subsistence. Out. That's right. So <laughs> so there have got to be some people, if not virtuous, at least sane, who can see what these kinds of things are leading to in real life. Yes. And it's interesting, for example, that China has basically said that they're not going to abide by any of the things that they agreed to when it came to the Paris Accords. Or when you look at countries like India, who are just going ahead, they're developing countries. Of course, they're going to do the sorts of things that outrage environmental activists because they need to economically develop if they're going to be having societies which are even mildly prosperous. Or if you look at what's happening in different parts of the United States, Canada, Australia, Western European countries, where you're having electricity blackouts because they don't have enough electricity to be able to meet people's needs. Or even when people start to look at things like the cost of air travel. I mean, I'm not sure uh, when you last took an international flight, Kate, but the last time I did, I looked at the, the price very carefully and you see that a big chunk of it is for um, basically- Carbon offsets. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And after a while, Okay, well, that means less people traveling to Europe or traveling to Asia or whatever it happens to be. That's not good for commerce. That's not good for tourism. That's not good for business. So, so in a way, we're seeing, in effect, that the economy, whether one likes it or not, is responding by sending price signals about the actual cost of these things. So if you want to live in California and you want to have um, lots of uh, um, 
uh, fires because you're unwilling to burn the undergrowth that fuels many of these fires because of the environmentalists. Or if you're having blackouts in the middle of July or in the middle of December when you've got extremes of heat and cold uh, because you don't have enough electricity and you're having to engage in electricity rationing because you thought that solar panels were going to somehow substitute for fossil fuels, then then of course there's going to be uh, economic, severe economic consequences to this. Now, political leaders can deny these things for long periods of time. And there's plenty of people in the, in the media, in the popular culture, who will back them up on all these sorts of things. But at some point, it becomes just very, very difficult to deny. And that, I think, is where we see a certain degree of hope, right? Because economic reality at some point comes crashing in on people's lives. And at some point, I suspect that even the most progressive, unemployable trust fund baby in New York is going to be upset when he doesn't have enough electricity in his um, apartment uh, to be able to uh, watch uh, <laughs> to watch shows on their iPad. Netflix At some or point, whatever. Those, yeah. <laughs> it's the same with ESG, right? So ESG funds typically underperform when it comes to returns, and yet they ask you to pay more. So at some point, even very progressive people are going to say, why am I paying more by way of fees and getting less by way of actual returns? At some point, even they will start to ask these questions. So that's interesting. So that's maybe where part of the hope can lie, because I guess, you know, just to kind of wrap up what we're talking about here, the question is, how, you know, damaging can this get for regular people? And I guess you just maybe gave the answer that is maybe the, the solution in a sense, or part of the solution to it uh, is that people start to see, you know, how it's really going in their lives. But do you think besides that, there are other types of solutions, other ways to kind of hit back against the ESG thing, maybe legally, yes. uh, how, how can Absolutely. you fight back? Absolutely. And in fact, I think in the United States, we've seen some very good examples of that. Uh, and that it's primarily through the legal system. Because corporate law in the United States is very clear that shareholder primacy is what matters, and that Corporations, certainly publicly traded corporations, have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders above all else. And what's been very interesting in the way that, for example, some of these um, uh, red states have been responding to the ESG agenda is, of course, by withdrawing funds from uh, big fund managers like BlackRock and saying, you know, as long as you're pursuing these crazy ideas, we're not going to be we're not going to invest in you. Now, mm. that's really it, the amounts concerned, considering how much an outfit like BlackRock manages or has under management, is relatively small. But that's terrible PR for a company when entire states are saying, we're withdrawing our pension funds from anything to do with BlackRock or whoever it happens to be because... Um, we're not interested in playing the ESG game. Now, what's interesting about this is that they, the letters that are sent in these cases, they, they start off by talking about how they don't like woke companies, they don't like businesses getting into these fights. But when you look at the actual legal reason that is cited as their basis for pulling funds from these big fund managers, the case is always that. To the extent that you invest in ESG, you cannot be prioritizing shareholder value. So the more you invest in ESG, it's inevitable. It's In fact, it's part of the deal that shareholder value just becomes one of many other concerns that the business is trying to pursue. And that is the legal grounds on which they're pulling their funds. And that's because that's the status of American corporate law. Hmm. Now, in America, I think there's, there's actually lots of opportunities for doing this, for private individuals, for companies, state governments, um, pension funds to express their concern and their unhappiness 
in this way by using the legal system and even bringing suit in many cases against companies saying the law says you are responsible for delivering shareholder value. To the extent you get into ESG, you're clearly departing from that and I am going to sue you for not fulfilling your part of the bargain. There are cases going on about that now and there are plenty of fund managers around the United States who are very worried about this because uh, it means that they are now facing significant legal challenges, which costs them money. So in America, I think there's a lot of hope for pushing back against this stuff, politically and legally. I'm less optimistic about Europe because in Europe, in, for example, in Germany, it's actually part of the law now that anyone who's managing funds must invest a certain percentage in things like ESG funds. So they're already being mandated there. Now, that would be much harder to do in the United States. So I think America has a decisive advantage there. But um, when it comes to, uh, if you think about global economic competition, the more the Europeans enter into the ESG world, I think the less competitive they're going to become. And that's another thing that's going on. Economic incentives, economic signals tell us something about ESG's effects upon the economy. And the effects are not good. And that affects 330 million Americans. Wow, it's just incredible. That's really good news for America. But as you said, I could see in Europe that they're just, you know, declining. And I just had this thought, Sam, do you think that this is more of a philosophical question? Mm -hmm. But Europe has been around for much longer than the United States. And we saw them pull themselves almost to the to the end of destruction in the 20th mm -hmm. century. Twice. Twice. And, you know, they say things come in threes. And I just wonder if this is kind of a continuation of that same kind of suicide that Europe has been committing now for, yeah. for a century. You're not the first person to ask me this question in the context of ESG. Hmm. Because if you think about ESG, it reflects... Um, it reflects many of the things that Western Europeans in particular angst about. The environment, social questions. They angst about these things in a way that Americans find, I think, for the most part, odd. But it also means, if you buy into ESG, it also means that you're accepting a certain degree of um, declining economic performance. You're willingly giving up uh, profit-making, delivering shareholder value, maximization of capital investment, etc., in order to pursue particular political and social goals. Now, they've done this to a certain extent with their welfare states, right, because these are now unsustainable. Every, try they, every time they try and reform them, there's riots in the streets, etc., it's all part of a broad narrative, I think, of at least in Western Europe, of self-inflicted decline, which in turn usually reflects a crisis of inner belief. So I think ESG, to a certain extent, can be seen as part of that broader European drift towards managed decline something that I think America and Americans are much more resilient in the face of. Okay, so all of that being said, do you have hope for America when it comes to all of this ESG nonsense? Yes, I do, because there's already significant backlash against it. I find it fascinating that um, uh, large swathes of corporate America, and particular individuals, who sort of symbolize corporate America are now trying to put some distance between themselves and ESG, trying to disassociate themselves from the term. Um, I find it fascinating that, um, that you're finding companies are looking at what's happened to outfits like Bud Light or Target and saying, really, do we really want to play this particular type of game? And also they're becoming aware, I think, that there are some... Uh, some political movements in the United States that would like to regulate them down this path anyway. 
So I think in the business community, there is more awareness of this. There's also more awareness of the sheer incoherence of ESG. When you start to dig into what it actually means and how it operates, it becomes very quickly that apparent that this is not a coherent way of looking at the world. It has great difficulty proving that it actually achieves what it says it achieves. And it produces less by way of returns. And that's something that Americans are rightly concerned about. So ESG has lost, I think, the lustre, the sort of, um, the tide, I think, is no longer quite with it in a way that it was, say, two years ago. Now, my hope is that it will go the way of things like corporate social responsibility and be consigned to the graveyard of made-up business school anachronisms that, uh, that exist in the United States. My fear is that in 10 years' time, we'll be revisiting this, but they'll be using a different anachronym and a different type of language to try and, and, and legitimize what they're trying to do now. But I do think that ESG at, at the moment is now under pressure in a way that it clearly wasn't even six months ago, and that's a good sign. Well, that makes a lot of sense, Sam. And it's just kind of how things come in waves, you know, and then you have to kind of push them back down again, and then they resurface. And we didn't have time to get into this today. I'm really glad that we looked into kind of more of the technical aspects of ESG. But I'd really like to, in another discussion, get into oh. the philosophical aspects of it and how it ties into neo-Marxism or critical theory or things like that. And this makes sense when you say it may come back up again. It seems to be how those bad ideas come back up again in time. <laughs> and the then you have to challenge them again. The battle right. of ideas is endless. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. I learned a lot and I hope our audience have as well. Uh, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share? Um. When Elon Musk described ESG as a scam, he was right. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, Kate.